Hello, welcome back to This Film Not Rated, a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network. I'm Eric. I'm Curtis. And we're here to talk about the movies we watched this week. So, Curtis, mm-hmm. why don't you list the movies that you watched for me this week so we know what to review? This week, I watched Selma, watched The Changeling, and Summer Wars. Mm. Eric, what movies did you watch this week? I watched... Edgy movies. You watched edgy movies. I watched uh, Teenager Edgy. Edgy's a rating. Uh, edgy can be good or bad. <laughs> I watched The Crow. Mm-hmm. I rewatched the 1994 Brandon Lee The Crow. Okay. Um, and I re and I rewatched the American uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Okay. By David Fincher. Mm-hmm. All right. So. Uh... Selma was the big one for me, a movie about Martin Luther King, specifically his time in Selma, Alabama, about uh, voting rights for uh, African-Americans and the struggles they go through with that. And the thing that uh, stands out the most for the movie for me is how they treat Martin Luther King as the man and not the legend. They don't shy away from his uh, more vulnerable and uh, imperfect side. They also didn't shy away from his methods when it comes to the actual protests. Uh, when I watched Selma, I was completely unprepared for what I was going to watch. It was just something that I was interested in seeing. Uh, I immediately became a fan of David Oyelowo, who plays uh, Martin, Martin Luther, Luther King. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated at the relationship he had with Malcolm X, the way they depicted it, and the relationship I did not consider with how Martin Luther King may have gained some credibility in contrast with some of the critics of Malcolm X. Yeah. I feel like there was a danger for Selma feeling like a history lesson. In fact, the version of the movie that I have that you borrowed is uh, one where donations went towards it being applied to school curriculum. Mm -hmm. What it turned out to be, for example, Martin Luther King, a part of the reason why he might have felt more real Mm -hmm. uh, is because they couldn't use his speeches. That is true. They had to uh, modify what he said. She had to write her own speeches. Ava DuVernay had to write her own speeches to replace historically accurate uh, speeches from Dr. Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. And attempt to convey the same speech patterns and intent with Mm -hmm. new words. Yeah. And I feel like that prevented me as a viewer from hearing something familiar and... It kept it feeling like something I was experiencing that was new. Yeah, yeah and uh, I, I haven't committed his name to memory yet. Uh, the actor who plays Martin Luther King, uh, he actually was, for a while, he was working on how to speak as Martin Luther King since before this movie was made because it's a role that he's always wanted to play. And it's actually Oprah Winfrey who came in and, and helped get him down as far as the uh, enunciation goes. For his speech patterns. She also helped uh, uh, produce the movie. She helped give it funding to actually be made. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. At least as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Um, marching sequences. Uh, the marching sequences were were very visceral and very blunt. They didn't shy away from what they were. Uh, it was very matter of fact. There was a lot of almost documentary seeming direction uh and then there are times when i felt like i was becoming aware of the intent behind certain things like when uh, dr king is in jail and they frame him they frame him intentionally 
barred up against the right side of the frame. Yeah. And there there were just a couple of instances like that where I was just like, oh, wow. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's then it, it's. Oh, man. It's, Why it's... was I like, wow? Because <laughs> it was impressive. Mm-hmm. Ah. It's also it's that's also one of the scenes showing Martin Luther King's more vulnerable side. It, it's part of the it's part of what humanizes him as, as someone beyond just a legend. The way it fun- it feels like it functions as an empathy machine, mm-hmm. and that's not from me originally. That's from somebody else. I just I feel like that that plays such a big role in the way that I view movies. Is what am I learning about, and what am I understanding about the world yeah. from it? And yeah. I feel like there's if that. If that if that if Selma honestly resonates as true mm-hmm. for the audience that had to go through what's depicted in the movie, yeah, I feel like it's a gift in a way, um, yes. which I know is positive. So, so there's this there is this famous quote by George R. R. Martin. It's a uh, a person who reads lives a thousand lives. A person who doesn't only gets to live one. I feel it's the same way for movies, and Selma is a good example of that. Yeah. Yeah. It took me a while to to recognize Tim Roth as the uh, as the governor of Alabama. He, he puts on such a thick accent, and he speaks in, in, in a vernacular that's that I'm so unused to coming from him. Tim Roth's character verges on a type of character that I feel like is happening more and more often in movies. Um, the white actor who is reviewed positively for depicting racism accurately, mm-hmm. uh, where we're continuing to give a claim to people for depicting hatred appropriately. Yeah. Um, I guess I don't really have much to comment on here about that. Okay. But I, I felt safe informed and slightly enlightened by watching Selma. Yeah. Like I haven't personally gone through the research to see what all they got historically right. But at the very end of the movie, they goes out of its way at the end to show you footages from the actual March. You know, one of the big points that I I wanted to make about Selma, Mm -hmm. that movie was the first movie to really make me aware of, how recent in our history those events happened. Yeah, there was a... Anyone who was alive then and survived, you know, that time period, mm-hmm. you know, would likely be alive now. Yeah. Martin Luther King, were he not assassinated, would possibly likely be alive now. Very, yeah, I mean... And we're not talking old. We're not... We're talking slightly younger than the last president. Yeah, I and mean, and the current president. It, yeah, it's like uh, the 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 events in the movie take place. I want to say in 1965, and it's like not long after JFK's assassination. When I walked out of the theater, I was acutely aware that the people who experienced that mm-hmm. still had to live it, and they still had to live in communities next to the people who were against their movement. Yeah, and that has carried on. Uh, if I want to say they continued to experience that even for 10, 20 years, you're talking as late as the 80s. Yeah. That it was that rampant, that situation in society. And I just, I couldn't become unaware of that after watching this movie. Yeah, it's, uh, 
It shows the ugly side that we try to look away from, and there are times when you can't. Yeah. Um, well put. So. Other than Selma. That was a great pick for this week, by the way, Curtis. Mm -hmm. I think I really appreciate that you wanted to do that, so. So, uh, other than Selma, we watched, uh... We well, watched. I'm kind of curious how we want to run through this, because the movies that we watched kind of jump in tone. They jump drastically in tone. And so I kind of want to take things from from things that happen in real life that are hard to stomach at mm-hmm. times to maybe something else that's hard to stomach that's fiction. So I was going to go with the girl with the dragon tattoo. Okay. Then break our way to The Crow. Which is about tragedy, but is, you know, and our tragedy in real life is attached to it, but it's still a gothic fantasy. Yeah. And then make our way up to Summer Wars. Okay. Which, no, I'm sorry. Well, we still got then the make our way to The Changeling, and end on which Wars. is a horror that, as far as I'm aware, doesn't have a real life tragedy attached to it, but is still a 70s escapist horror. And then Summer Wars. Yeah. Which, yeah. It's just a fun movie. So, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, mm-hmm. uh, starring Nomi Rapace in Sweden, mm-hmm. was made in 2009. Okay. And they finished their trilogy by 2011, the year that the American Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, with... <laughs> um, a Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig, but but the actress who committed really hard to the role... Who I... nearly quit acting making the Nightmare on Elm Street remake as Nancy. Rooney Mara. Rooney Mara, okay. This story, I've read the book. I've seen the Swedish version. I've seen the American version. Okay. This story always sticks out to me as an example where a revenge story, the revenge fantasy that you see in a lot of movies, like, uh, well... I don't know what some great examples of revenge fantasies would be, but like, you know, John Wick is a revenge action movie, you know, there are different things. To me, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo always distinguished itself by delving into the worst of what human beings can do to each other. Mm Mm-hmm. And playing up to revenge that matched the intensity of the worst of what they could do to each other. Okay. That somehow strikes a balance that feels like what happens to you is justified. Nobody's hands are clean here. And that's good for certain characters and bad for others. Yeah. I just remember it being a very David Fincher film. Like everything from the cinematography to the directing to to the writing, it's all... In his style, and it's... well, we've talked about Edgar Wright's style a couple of times on here, and there yeah. are a few modern directors that are just inescapably recognizable in how they direct a movie. Yes, so I agree with you with this that this is a very David Fincher style movie. So, so and then like, and it's all, all I can really talk about are, are like the the scenes that that stick out to me, like specifically like uh, how. Uh, how sex is used in the movie. It's always as a tool. It's never really meant for passion, except for, I think, for one scene. But even then, it's... I don't see it as being used as a storytelling device. Cause I'm, I, like, I'm not... Well, I mean, in, especially in terms of uh, Lisbeth's relationship with the 
guardian that's assigned to her that absolutely is a storytelling device. Oh yeah. Um okay. the aggressive rape and right, right. anti rape. Uh, um I I I'm I'm just curious. I'm trying to dance around the word tool and see if we can't come up with a different word for that because the idea is that like they they use each other, but the relationships are there. But I understand that what you're saying is they sort of sex seems to be a big part of the story but it seems to be there for the purpose, like represented as something the characters. It's like they're eating. Yeah. It's... You know, it's like we normally don't linger on a scene of a person eating breakfast in a movie, but the way that they're having sex in the movie is we're lingering on it in that way. Yeah. There is a story happening at a surface level here that gets put on hold. In an almost, quote-unquote, once-upon-a-time fashion. Okay. Okay, there's... Daniel Craig's character is caught in a trap. So he's being sued for slander or libel mm-hmm. uh, against a person, uh, Wernerstrom? 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 And the way that these characters are tied together builds from that story mm-hmm. and leads you into a completely unrelated murder mystery... Right. That facilitates Lisbeth and uh, Mikhail Blomquist mm-hmm. uh, growing together into in a professional and personal relationship until she's driven to help him finish that story. So it's like we start the first half of a story, take mm-hmm. a break, tell a whole story, come back, finish the original story. Yeah. It's a it's a very different structure than a lot of movies that follow kind of like a first act, second act, third act structure. Right. Rooney Mara, apart from when she's in the more intense, like rapey parts of the story, mm-hmm. is very much in control. Daniel Craig is sort of the sheepish, I'm not sure one, and she So he's just takes going charge. along for the ride and she's the one driving? Yeah, the Lisbeth is a character that intentionally rejects the society and Yet she somehow makes her way competently through freelancing in order okay. to survive. All right. But because of her past and her violence, she's been declared incompetent by the government. So ah. she has to have a guardian run her life in a certain ways. But she loved her last guardian. So so when you say David Fincher, yes, his fingerprints are all over it. Especially when you have another adaptation of the movie that you can directly contrast it with. Mm-hmm. It's a way of being able to study what makes someone unique. Yeah. When you can look at someone take the exact same material and see how they do it two different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, digital film shots, uh, quote unquote, impossible camera movements, product placement, digital filmmaking being like the preferred tool. These are things that don't work for other directors like Christopher Nolan and all and, and, and some other people. Mm-hmm. I think Edgar Wright constantly tries to stick to film when he can. Yeah. Um, and so you get it, you have a different synthetic cold quality to a lot of David Fincher's movies. And that's, that's definitely here. Mm-hmm. And the interesting part is a lot of times when things are warmer and brighter, yeah, it is tailored to the more violent and dangerous parts of the story. Ah. Like the explosion of a car at the end or, uh, the bright red when the character is planning her vengeance for what happens to her early in the story. Okay. Um, the warmer the colors are on screen, the more uncomfortable things seem to be happening to characters in the story. 
I kind of want to go back and rewatch the Swedish girl with the dragon tattoo and maybe I can revisit then a little bit more about what to me like again if movies are an empathy machine mm-hmm. what that makes me f- what my the takeaways from that movie is for me in the way I operate because I feel like that I really often model off of characters and protagonists that resonate with me in the stories that I do like if I watch a movie starring a character who is a really appealing, competent, functioning hacker. Mm -hmm. I will be really active on my laptop for the next week, and I will be really wanting to get things done technically proficiently, and I'll care a lot more about it. Right, I'm I'm similar in that way, where, like... Like, even with the anime, I'll watch a show like One Punch Man, then I'll get pumped up and I'll exercise for a full year and actually lose weight. And then at some point I'll lose the motivation and gain that weight back. But Well, there's there's a degree, I think, Mm because I think sometimes when I watch Johnny Depp movies, at least especially when I did younger, you know, there's intentional impressions. There's intentionally doing different things to try and make it, you know, a part of your personality or what you're recognized for. You want to model off of people and understand what's appealing about them. But the interesting thing about the girl with the dragon tattoo is I wanted to be Elizabeth. I didn't care about being Daniel Craig. Mm. Uh, just the way there's something that resonates with the way her character looks at people and handles herself. And yeah, um, I don't know. Maybe there's a bit of reflection in the way that she exhibits anger and whatnot. You know, I don't want to go through what she's been through for sure. Yeah. But the level of skill and intellect that she shows and just that kind of easygoing way of handling problems as they present themselves is just something so appealing about it and her yeah. style i'm gonna say but yeah you know appealing all that kind of yeah anyways <laughs> so so i think that's good for the girl with the dragon tattoo so i'm gonna jump to one that we both um I've know s- pretty good seen, bit about we've seen many many times the crow the crow starring brandon lee who tragically of course died uh, and yes, I'm doing tragically, and I'm not putting a buzzword there. Um, that's just the way that I'm attributed, but I'm not going to talk too much about this. Uh, last final days of shooting, they uh, were shooting the scene where Eric Draven is dies, and a fragment got chipped off when they were loading blanks into the gun that they were using. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of this, apparently, there is a rule that dictates that Actors can't aim even stunt guns directly at other actors anymore. Yeah. And so, you know, it it went into him and he passed away. And and for the interesting thing about bringing that up, the original story, the graphic novel, was written because of the loss of James O'Barr's family. Yeah. Which to him felt so torturous and careless that he sort of needed an outlet and it became The Crow, this yeah. graphic novel, and yeah, then and a comic strip later. And then, yeah, I mean, we both have the graphic novel too. And like, it, James Labar used the comic as a way to, to like relieve this anger, but oddly enough, it didn't help mm. in a weird way. But it, it wasn't until Brandon Lee came onto the scene that. That James Labar actually found some meaning in what he did. Well, and I think Alex Proyas. I think the production of that movie sort mm. of helped it become something more positive than it was when the other was just kind of a descent. I can't speak to the experience that the creator I, had. I can't either. What I can speak to is the cultural sort of appeal that The Crow had after it came out. 
the gothic evanescence, you know, nine inch nails, nine inch nails sort of uh, appeal, which funnily enough, Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross Mm -hmm. uh, score for girl with the dragon tattoo, Mm -hmm. you know, nine inch nails. Yeah. The uh, story is as simple as it can possibly be. Two people were killed tragically and one came back a crow guiding him to get revenge one by one on the people who caused them pain. Yep. And I promised I was going to say this. The movie is about 80% gothic art film mm-hmm. and about 20% lethal weapon for edgelords. I mean, yeah, like, it's like <laughs> there's the sort of vision behind it. Um, it's yeah. funny. You could almost take, you say that it takes influence from 1989's Batman Mm-hmm. But given that they're five years apart, looking at the stylistic differences, it's a much more believable world to me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I knew I was going to get buzzed talking about The Crow. So well, I think you mentioned this once before, but I think the director wanted the movie to be in black and white, but they didn't have the budget for it. So to wash away all the color, the movie is just drenched in rain. I just don't think... I think there was a stigma in the early 2000s and all through the 90s of making a movie in black and white believing that people wouldn't see it Mm -hmm. and so they used production design to make things as black and white as possible and that's brings me to a really important point that i was glad uh that you brought up Mm -hmm. watching this uh on a big bigger screen Mm -hmm. i noticed something that i did not notice before you've read the graphic novel Yes. You know that the crow has two different colored eyes because one eye is dead and it has a scar that runs from the bottom of his left eyelid across his nose and arcs down his cheek. Yeah. That is in Brandon Lee's makeup. It is on his face. I never realized this. Like, all throughout. It it took all the way until the close-up where he takes uh, Darla, Mm -hmm. the mom of Sarah, the girl that they were taking care of, into the bathroom. And he's looking in the mirror at her. Yeah. And I couldn't unsee it after that. It was right there. And uh, on top of that, he ties a bullet shell into his hair. After a certain point in the movie, you can see it swinging around in different scenes. And all of these are tiny details. There's this... uh, really interesting detail when he comes into Gideon's pawn shop mm-hmm. this bird flies in this is when Brandon Lee is uh doing the raven and he's walking towards him uh right after he finishes the raven he smiles and just lets drool fall from his bottom lip yeah that I do remember that and it's it's very unsettling it's the I... closest that he gets to feeling like a functioning corpse the way that the character feels in the in the graphic graphic novel novel. yeah and it's funny because all of these details would so have been lost on vhs yes they would have and so if you didn't see this movie in the theatrical run these are details that people wouldn't really have appreciated until like within the last 10 years right and that's fascinating to me because i know it, it doesn't change the complete experience of the movie but in a sense it, it's it's nice knowing that uh, that there are details that will no longer be missed because of... Uh, well, uh, it's just the production design is so important that it got down to these little things. And yeah. the idea that, like, if the aesthetic is such an important part of the movie, mm-hmm. where, you know, in some scenes you kind of have a generic, oh, if you shoot the crow, he loses his powers. And then, I'm sorry, I called that generic... <laughs> <laughs> um 
you know, the crow gets shot. There's this sequence in a, in a church where they're shooting guns at each other. Yeah. Just after the one scene where their guns blazing uh, with just the crow and everyone in the room, mm-hmm. everything with guns in the movie just feels like lethal weapon to me. Okay. Which, you know. Um, so when he's with Officer Ghostbuster, <laughs> he points out, I was immortal. I'm not anymore. Yeah. And that line sticks out to me as weird, and then they have this fun musical moment. A weird. I'm getting destroyed. Um, they have this musical moment towards the end. There's this setup and payoff right. of he, Albrecht, that's the officer's name, starts smoking, spits, and he says, I'm quitting. Because earlier he says, you shouldn't smoke these, they'll kill you. Yes. And, uh... It's it's weird. It's almost like... After- the idea of the character of the crow sitting and having a laugh at a character quitting smoking mm-hmm. just feels different in a way that doesn't feel like the intent based on the rest yeah. of the scenes of the movie. Yeah. Like, it it almost seems to me like those scenes in, in particular where, where, where the crow is giving like these, these little insights... Like uh, he tells the story to Officer Albright about how him and him and Shelley would argue over things that would seem trivial, and then he says nothing, nothing is trivial. Is trivial. It, it's almost like the crow, now that he's dead, has greater insight in, in what people should be focusing on, and he's he's going out of his way to try and uh, course correct for certain individuals, and I think that's the point: is that there there are so many ways to save a life. I can that, see that. That the movie refuses to put one over the other. You know, a lot of people are very angry when you talk about the concept of remaking The Crow. Because I think a lot of people are afraid of losing some of what you have. But there are a couple things that I'd like to see. Uh, a 4K upgrade of The Crow seems counterintuitive because... Adding high dynamic range would make colors pop in a way that I feel like, you know... Probably shouldn't. Isn't necessarily the intent of the original production design. Yeah. And so then you could consider upscaling it, but when you consider having to go back... I don't think Alex Proyas would ever revisit the footage to supervise it for a new scan. I don't... I think these people are hurt too much to go back and revisit this movie. There are things about the original graphic novel, namely uh, depictions of death and pain, uh, like a horse getting caught in barbed wire mm-hmm. and a lot of things that depict suffering yeah. that didn't necessarily feel represented in this rendition of the movie. Yeah. And so I've always kind of been curious to see if there was a different take that another director would have on it, because I, again, was talking to Samia about this. The bare bones of The Crow, you could make a version of without violating copyright. Yeah. It's just a character is dead, comes back, kills the people who killed him. Yeah. It's a whole skeletons in your closet basic thing. You could turn it into a comedy. You could do whatever you wanted with that concept. Mm. It is so the nature of the artwork that makes it what it is. Yeah. And so I feel like there are aspects of the aesthetic and the artwork that are 
that maybe could be represented differently in a way that would be worth exploring. I could see that. Ah, worth exploring. (laughs) The Crow is a movie that I've watched a hundred times and will probably watch a hundred more times. And for anyone who has experienced grief and loss, I, I do recommend healthier coping skills. And But sometimes when you need a piece of media to meet you where your emotions are at, in order to process and get a hold of where you are and know what direction you need to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Crow did that for me at different times. And that movie, as unfortunate as what happened to Brandon Lee is, does a lot of the same thing. I do believe there are some things about it that will forever be exclusive to the 90s. Yeah. So... That'd be my only other comment, but I can't think of anything else to add. So okay, so tonight <laughs> we watched the Changeling, starring starring George C. Scott of Exorcist Three and other films. Yep, the other notable one that I can think of is uh, Doctor Strangelove, where he plays. The oh general. yeah, he is in Doctor Strangelove. Plays the general. Well, here's the thing with Doctor Strangelove, uh, real quick. Uh, George C. Scott always sees himself as like a serious actor. And so he wanted to play that role in Dr. Strangelove in that way, but that's not how Kubrick wanted him to play. But Kubrick is also a very witty person. So what he did was he always had George C. Scott play three roles. He had him play an over-the-top take, a normal take, and a serious take. So no matter what, Kubrick always got the shot he wanted to the point where when George C. Scott saw the movie, he, he flat out says, that is not my performance. That's I didn't know that. Um so that that's besides the point. Uh Well, I think it's worth focusing on George C. Scott as an actor. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's the lead in this movie. The movie focuses heavily on his emotional experiences, the tragedy he experiences, his haunting and mm-hmm. and he really is the investigative force that drives the story forward. And so all of the emotions that the movie attempts to convey, convey, I I guess convey the emotions that attempts to elicit are conveyed through (laughs) George C. Scott's performance. So he has a lot on his shoulders because there's a lot they try to restrain initially in the movie. Right. So the changeling is the type of, paranoia and fear-based uh tension building thriller yeah. you've seen in the 70s sort of like uh invasion of the body snatchers the remake uh rosemary's baby yeah, 70s uh mid 60s as well so like mid yeah. through through the 70s yeah it's it's uh changeling is a very much it's it's through for about half the movie it's it's building tension and it builds it uh to this point where eventually the character has to do a seance to understand what's going on with the house because the house itself is acting weird and it leads into this whole other plot point where where you get into this uh this like murder mystery type of movie so the so tonally it changes about halfway through the movie and then about around the start of the third act it changes back to what it was so in essence the movie has a couple of different tones but it transitions between them 
without calling attention to itself. Feels like close-ups are reserved. Edits yeah. uh, are longer held. Yeah. Uh, shots are staged longer and planned longer. There, it, it almost feels like there's more choreography going on with the scenes. Everything is very precise. Yeah, purposeful. Uh, yeah. Yeah, not not a lot of coverage. A lot of uh, mm. uh, very intentional, purposeful shots. Um, this movie had a lot of elements of really recent popular horror movies yes the conjuring franchise the the ring for one thing like the ring the ring is is, is almost all over this movie we'll get back to that though because i want to yeah. transition that into summer wars because okay. things things are based on <laughs> so you can watch this movie and it's sort of like forced through a lens of the time period that it's made mm-hmm. and yet you're watching the same target product that's being made for today's audience right yeah I, like this this movie was made in in, in 1979 so it was like 78 77 yeah uh, i'd be very interested to see a remastered version of this movie to f- see if a new person who was viewing it could tell when it was made yeah i i would imagine most people would put it somewhere in the mid 80s but I feel like if you told someone, if this looked a little more restored, mm-hmm. if you told someone 90s, I think they'd believe it. I, I think so, yeah. I think the mystery aspect of this story is very unique. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it, where it's the the idea of it, without going into spoilers, is is the ghost of the house is dropping hints as to when and where it died, and it's up to George C. Scott to figure out who and uh, to inform said person so this uh, entity can actually rest. And there's... there's Sound familiar? It's almost <laughs> like if the house was some kind of haunted videotape, it would be like another movie. Mm-hmm. It's... Uh, Again, we'll get back to that briefly. We will get back to that briefly. But, uh, and there are other ass like... Uh, I don't know. This is probably the first movie I've seen within, like, like in, in chronological history, where the idea of 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 a ghost voice being picked up on white noise being a thing. I don't think I've seen it in any other movie uh, before this one. Hmm. So it, it taps into that. Uh, it brings it, it taps into the paranoia of the audience as well, because uh, and and the main character, because we don't know what's going on with the house. We don't know exactly what's happening and there are these little signs and, and events going on with the house that seem weird and random at first but as the movie unfolds everything has a meaning everything has a payoff mm-hmm. i was gonna say for the seance sequence mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to most sequences where you have uh vincent d'onofrio come in and tell you what the monster is um no comment here i have Different opinions about different movies that do different things like that. Yeah. Um. The seance sequence in this, I can sort of tell from the beginning of it. I think I told you I felt like this was going to uh, build a lot of tension. Yeah. And uh, I, I wasn't actually that tame about what I was saying. Obviously, that's for the podcast. But yeah. uh, I will say the manner in which they do this. It's a little different 
there are aspects of the seance that we don't see in other movies. Like, for example, the uh, writing the method they use, the writing, the only stuck out yeah. to me. That's a, I haven't yeah. seen that in something else. The only other thing that I've seen that in, oddly enough, is Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skulls, where Ox the is doing the, the, the skull. yeah, where, where 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 Ox is doing the hand thing, and Indy sees it. And he recognizes yeah. it as, as, as like pencil movements. Yeah. It's the only other thing I've seen that in. Man, how great is John Hurt? John Hurt's amazing. So. Fuck you. I asked a question. You answered. So. The. <laughs> uh, I feel like a dick. <laughs> it's fine. But, um, so ultimately, I, I, the last thing I wanted to mention is that this is in the recently released uh significant movies of the 80s horror documentary hmm. and it's one of the first ones they mentioned this is why i knew to put it on the list for shutter okay. uh, which by the way this is on shutter so if you get a 30 day free trial for shutter this is a movie that is widely recognized as significant and and worth your time <sighs> so uh you know the obvious association that this movie has with the ring or Ringu mm-hmm. from the late nineties, early two thousands. Right. Like the, 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 there is a body discovered in a well that matters to an investigation of someone who wronged a child. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of impossible to not realize the influence this must've had on that story. No. Cause like even the location where the well is found, is it, 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 the beneath ring, the floorboards of a house? Yeah, yeah. It, the the ring took it completely from this movie. You would think. Ah, uh, I, but that's the thing. I don't know if they just took saw an interest in that idea and built off of it because it is Ringu, the right. like the, the ring, right. the Japanese movie that's, is that's the only, very uniquely Eastern. It is, and yeah. I will say that like, so let's the the most you can say is that there is an element of the story that is similar, but the way the story is told as well as the spirit itself are very different mm. because in ring in in in, in ringu yeah. the the spirit is is a malicious spirit it, it it is out to kill people and it's obviously not the case in this one and there's I mean, well I, kind of yes and there, no. there's there's I, a, a scene yeah there's a it's out it's out for someone in particular it's not out for random people it would be very interesting to have a discussion about how i feel like this movie could be remade um talking a lot about remakes of movies at this time and mm-hmm. i know it's not a very hot topic with people they're not very comfortable when people do that especially with classics or other revered movies but again i stand by that if i were ever to remake one of these movies mm-hmm. i if i ever had the clout to do something like that yeah it would come with a clause in the contract that the movie is re-released with the original and a certain amount of the budget of the movie would go towards ensuring that an appropriate restoration and transfer of the original would come with it. Right. Uh, so that, you know, some it basically could be like if someone wants to buy the movie and watch it, they can buy the movie and watch it. If someone wants to buy the original and it comes with this one, they're paying, you know, yeah. essentially the same price. So I think that's a, I think that's an idea, yep. you know. You reach a wider demographic of people who want to buy that story for whatever reason. So. Yeah, I think um, so. So, the we watched another movie today. Mm-hmm. Another movie that seems heavily to have inspired something that came after it. Yep, uh, this movie. Summer Wars. This movie's called Summer Wars. Another very colorful, bright, and confusing movie that Curtis showed me. 
that is really easy to describe as being exactly Ready Player One. Yep. Uh, this movie—it's based off of a manga, and this—the movie itself is came uh, out two years before the book was published. Ready Player One came out two years before the book was published, and this movie is directed by Mamoru Hosoda, who also directed movies like Wolf Children, uh, his most recent one, Mirai. And he also directed the Digimon movies, at least I think the first three. Hmm. And what I noticed the first time watching this one is that this movie is a better, keeping that in there, uh, and elongated version of the Deboromon movie from the American version, and which would be its own movie in in Japan. But it, it's 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 the exact same movie, spread it out. With uh, different characters, and it's the, this movie more plays on the humanistic side, and it focuses on a, a family in particular and how this family functions. And you know what I noticed the first time I watched this movie? What? Which was tonight? Mm-hmm. Was how it is an entire show in an anime shoved into two hours. It is that entirely. <laughs> every beat, every arc, every character growth arc that you would want to see in a typical show in an anime. Uh, several. What people would call tropes. I'm trying to think. Conventions is a better word of the of the genre of shonen. If that's a genre, what what am I looking for? What's the word I'm looking for? Here? I think shonen's a genre for sure. Like uh, so, there are aspects to it. Like there, like uh, several conventions of shonen are in yeah. this. I think tropes is 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 a good word because like but tropes is a negatively connotated word. Like okay. it's it's a hair's breadth away from the term cliche. So okay. I don't I don't want to say that. I, and I'm not saying that just to avoid a buzzer. I'm genuinely trying to say I don't feel like they breached into trope territory. Because mm. this movie, tonally and with the decisions of the characters, again, like, it's, it's confusing. Okay. You know, when the world is ending and you have two hours left, I don't expect the characters to sit down at the one hour mark and start <laughs> eating dinner. While they're talking about how they should stop eating dinner and deal with the nuclear threat. Yeah. That's, that's, it's the sort of story that makes me feel like there is something I do not understand about Eastern media. Yeah. Um, like. So there's this, uh, there's, there's a genre that I've recently learned about. I think this one fits it pretty well. The genre itself is, is, is called Sakaika. And it's the idea that there is a world ending event that's happening in the background but the focus of the movie is not the world ending event. It's the characters. It could be based on a family. It could be based on a romance. I think this fits that fairly well because the family, despite all this tragic stuff happening throughout the entirety of the world, because what is happening is happening globally. The movie is focused on this family doing this one thing. And that's the center, not, not the destruction of the world. But I'll tell you what. Um, doing that. And focusing more on certain family members than others, mm -hmm. I think, allowed me to feel more for the family members that I wanted to feel for. And not have to spend as much time on the characters that I wouldn't have wanted to spend as much time with. Right. The characters, by the way, the reason why I compare it to Ready Player One, occupy a world where everyone is logged into an accessible virtual world where they have avatars. And the whole world runs on it. Mm-hmm. They all log in, they all run their lives based on it. And there is a secret key that gets unlocked, essentially, by one character that opens up a program that is potentially destructive to 
not the Oasis, but Oz, as they know it. Mm-hmm. And it leads to a big looming threat that the characters then have to continue to progress with their avatars to try right. to combat. And then, you know, there are real world like reflections of what's happening with those characters. Mm-hmm. And then there are the obvious differences because everything is not, you know, a carbon copy or whatever, yeah. but um, so heavily inspired at first I thought, well, I, I, I was saying in the beginning of the movie, you know, the idea of the world eventually all living in a virtual reality doesn't seem impossible enough. That, like multiple people could come up with this concept. Yeah. But then it just got similar. Yeah. But I think the the point that I was going to make was you have this story going, and yet I never felt like the threat and the consequences, even though we're literally talking about a nuclear holocaust. I mm-hmm. uh, you know there's a character typing on his computer. And they're not really bothering to show you frames of his progress. You know, you have one character who you are watching him uh, hack a key code and you see him writing down on a piece of paper and he gets an answer and he passes it and then Mm -hmm. he gets locked behind another wall. Mm -hmm. So they're bothering to show you his progress and the roadblocks. Yeah. The other one, they're literally just watching a back view of him typing into a computer saying, not there yet, not there yet. And even then, like, that's... That, like, there's this romance story that happens uh, almost behind the scenes, but not really, where it's almost like a slow development, and these characters... It's a shounen anime romance. It's a shounen anime romance. If they had the ability to stretch it out across multiple seasons, the characters would have been flirting and then never actually (laughs) getting together over multiple seasons, and... One of the beats would be the cheek kiss that happens in the end. Yeah, but uh, like on, what I'm saying is a significant amount of the movie is focused on these two and their relationship. And there's this one scene in particular after after a family crisis has happened. And one of them is emotionally fragile. At that point, the movie makes a point to show all the family members gathered and huddled in, in this one spot. And the camera slowly pans away to a point where the frame is empty save the building and then not long after that these two get center frame and the film focuses on them at that moment and it's this intimate scene that uh works towards building that relationship and there's like little sprinklings of that not just with them but with everyone else throughout the entirety of the movie if you took the movie as a whole Mm -hmm. what would you say is the reason to watch it like what can you take away from it in terms of it being a piece of entertainment or something that builds empathy the way that we talked about other movies Hmm. this is much more oriented towards entertainment and escapism it is but it's one of those movies where you can just relax and watch and not have to worry too much about everything it's something that I, I, it's it's not a shut your brain off movie, but it's there's just something visually striking about it that just <laughs> that uh, immerses you into the world itself. It's colorful. There are several different character designs. Uh, there are two different worlds to explore. The idea of that world is to be able to live out a life that you wouldn't normally be able to live in the everyday world. And so, by extension. The idea of this movie is being able to live in a f- version of a world that you don't always get to live in. Right. And process things in a way that feels yeah. safe. Yeah. It's large-scale themes right. uh, and intimate family stories. 
It's the equivalent of a power fantasy. Something like wanting to become a ninja the way that you would with Naruto, or wanting to become a stronger fighter the way that you would with Dragon Ball Z, or wanting to be the best Pokemon trainer and engage with that fantasy through Pokemon. Mm-hmm. Um, there would have been probably a lot to invest someone's time in uh, when it comes to the world presented in this movie. Yeah. So yeah, so I, I think that's that's a pretty good way, uh, a summary of everything that we watched. Um, if you have any questions or anything, let us know. Yep. And uh, we noticed, you know, for the few of you who are watching this right now, um, if you are uh, enjoying the podcast, uh, please give us some feedback uh, at High Contrast FLM on Twitter or on the High Contrast uh, Facebook page. Um, you can also follow Curtis on Twitter at. You can follow me at 90sGamer407. And tell us uh, movies you'd like to see us uh, watch or review if, if this appeals to you. Again, thank you all for listening, uh, those of you out there who are listening. And um, if you like this, check out some of the other podcasts on the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network. And we will see you next week.